Um, hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and today we are continuing our exploration of Richard II um, and we are moving on to Act Two. So just a little reminder of last week we had this big fight slash conflict between Henry Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray, both courtiers in King Richard's court. Um, they met they exchanged a lot of words. They were going to exchange some blows. And then Richard banished them both instead of having them fight. And some other things happened too, but you'll just have to go back to the episode and find out. Um, and so now we are at Act Two. Will the king come that I may breathe my last and wholesome counsel to his unstayed youth? Vex not yourself, nor strive not with your breath, for all in vain comes counsel to his ear. Oh, but they say the tongues of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. Where words are scarce, they are seldom spent in vain. For they breathe truth that breathe their words in pain. He that no more must say is listened more than they whom youth and ease have taught to gloze. More are men's ends marked than their lives before. The setting sun and music at the close. At the last, as the last taste of sweets is sweetest last, writ in remembrance more than things long past. Though Richard my life's counsel would not hear, my death's sad tale may yet undeaf his ear. I'm no, just going to pause right here because I think there's another little Freddie foreshadow that is worth noting. Um, the setting sun and music at the close. There is a wonderful moment we're going to come to in Act 5 when Richard hears music when he is in prison. Sorry, spoilers. And um, he hears this music right before he dies. And it's, I think it's very arguable, as Rodney Cartier, the head of drama at Lambda, used to argue, that Richard is the only person to hear the music because he is close to death. And the people in Shakespeare who can hear music that no one else can hear usually die, like Richard and, and then Pericles, and who is then brought back to life. But, but it's a really fascinating thing. And then just as I said this, I just realized that throughout these two acts, Richard is always associated with the sun as well. So there's something really prophetic, I think, about this here. And then I, I also just wanted to point out, there's my favorite unwords, unstayed youth and undeath his ear, um, which are just really fun little uh, creations there. Um, yeah, any other, any other thoughts? We have our two brothers talking shit about their nephew. <laughs> well, just to add to the music, I think, because Rodney would say it's the music of the spheres. Right? Yes, like exactly. The, just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you. That is a really important detail. <laughs> so I think there's a really cool um, argument for when it says music do I hear that there is no music, that it's just Richard going, do I hear music? And the audience is like, no, bro, you don't, you know? But like, I think there's a whole bunch of interesting choices to be made, to be made there. But, um, and what do we think of, uh, I know you've only said two lines so far, York, but what do we think of, of York compared to Gaunt? Do you think they, they, they have similar attitudes towards Richard at this point? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think at this point, 
point, York York is just like, get over it. There's nothing there. You're mm. talking to the wall. Wonderful. Wonderful. And and why don't you take us from it to continue that argument further? No, it is stopped with other flattering sounds as praises of whose taste the wise are fond, lascivious meters to whose venom sound the open ear of youth doth always listen, report of fashions in proud Italy, whose manners still our tardy apish nation limps after in base imitation. Where doth the world thrust forth a vanity, so it be new there's no respect how vile that is not quickly buzzed into his ears. Then all too late comes counsel to be heard, where will doth mutiny with wit's regard. Direct not him whose way himself will choose, tis breath thou lackst, and that breath wilt thou lose. Methinks I am a prophet new inspired, and thus expiring do foretell of him. His rash fierce blaze of riot cannot last, for violence, fires soon burn out themselves. Small showers last long, but sudden storms are short. He tires betimes that spurs too fast betimes. With eager feeding, food doth choke the feeder. Light vanity, insatiate cormorant, consuming means soon preys upon itself. Okay, I'm just gonna pause there before you get to maybe the most famous sentence in all of uh, English poetry. Um, because I want to unpack this insatiate cormorant. Mm -hmm. Does anyone have any ideas about this? Yeah, that, that's a seabird, actually. And right. um, it's being compared to vanity. The means in the next line is, is its means of sustenance. Light vanity, mm -hmm. which, and this is consistent with what he's been talking about before, the fires that burn quickly, all these other things, which is insatiate, like the cormorant, consuming its means soon preys upon itself. And that Wonderful. could be not only... That could not be not only Richard, but England itself is, is, is going this way. If we turn into this sort of madness that he's, where we're just uh, light vanity and, and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I also wanted to point out, I think there, there's something going on in these histories plays. They just hate Italy. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's so much hate on Italy. Like it happened in, the, in act one of King John. There's an entire very weird archaic speech that basically makes fun of people who have been traveling to Italy and come back and they're like, oh yeah, I know all this stuff. It's really funny. It's like basically a Shakespearean way of like someone who just comes from their semester abroad and is like, I totally understand the culture. You know, like <laughs> I, I, I just love these, these little details, but there's the tardy apish nation, like it's just such a great, like we're always imitating them. We really need to like, to stand up and be our own country. But I, so now we're gonna get to this amazing, sort of there are so many, this is like the best list ever, I think. <laughs> um, it's just, it's like how many different ways of describing England. And uh, my, my mentor uh, used to say that the, at one time, this was the most well-known piece of text, partly because every school child had to learn it in the UK for many, many generations, except they would stop before the part about how, and we're all fucked. They would just learn this wonderful, like this royal throne of blah, blah, blah. But it would always stop before it got to, and we're all screwed because we're in, we're being badly governed. But let's, uh, Bill, why don't you take it away? <laughs> this royal throne of kings. This sceptered isle, 
this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection in the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves it in the office of a wall as, or, or as a moat defensive to a house against the levy of a less happy, against the envy of less happier lands. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, this nurse, this teeming womb of royal kings, feared by their breed and famous by their birth, renowned for their deeds as far from home for Christian service and a true chivalry, as is the sepulcher and stubborn jewelry of the world's ransom, blessed Mary's son. This land of such dear souls, this dear, dear land, dear for her reputation through the world, is now leased out. I die pronouncing it, like to a tenement or pelting farm. England bound in with the triumphant sea whose rocky shore beats back the envious siege of watery Neptune, is now bound in with shame, with inky blots and rotten parchment bonds. That England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself. Ah, would the scandal vanish with my life? How happy then were my ensuing death. I want to pause because I just have never understood the um, the middle part. They're beautifully read, Bill. Thank you so much. The middle part about the renowned for their deeds is far from home home for Christian service and true chivalry, as is the sepulcher in stubborn jewelry of the world's ransom, blessed well, Mary's son. Um, he's holding England up like Jesus in the Middle East. Stubborn jewelry, I think, refers to the fact that the Jews won't convert. They, they don't, um, Yeah. Um, they're not going to, um, so the sepulcher of Christ sort of stand as a, an image of what he's envisioning England as in a way. And that, you know, of course, the, the English participated in the, um, in the uh, Crusades. Yeah, and, Of course, yeah. Richard the Lionhearted. And so I think he's referencing some of that kind of aspect, that we were renowned mm -hmm. for the deeds as far from home for Christian service and true chivalry. So that's kind of a, a um, the idea that we, you know, our, our reputation, hey, man, we're kicked butt. They know us abroad. <laughs> and we are, you know, we've got this Christian shit going on. And, you know, we're, we're you know, just as the, you know, the sepulchre in the Middle East can hang on, we can, you know, our that's how good we are. And Blessed Mary's son, of course, is Christ. And the world's ransom, I think, is also Christ. Mm. Well, it is um, odd that they're, they're comparing their royal kings to the sepulcher of Jesus. Well, yeah. I think that's interesting. And I think, though, that that's part of the idea that John of Gaunt is sort of promoting, which is that the king is the anointed one of God. So in a way, he's in that lineage. He has a kind of a role in the Christian, um, you know, um, on earth sort of thing, Christ began it, but the kings are kind of a, a um, continuum of that, a continuation of that line in a way, not equal with him to be sure. Interesting. I don't know, that's, sorry, yeah. that was my- No, no, it's great. I, I just I, have, I, I'm much, I'm becoming much more curious about um, the sort of biblical references within Shakespeare because I just have absolutely no background. And so they're, they're, they're always kind of enigmas to me sort of at the back of my mind that the very famous like and was 
Jerusalem be builded here on England's green. Yeah, Blake. Pleasant. That's William Blake. Yeah, that's William Blake. And yes. it's like, no, it's it's in Jerusalem. It's not here. It's it's no, but over that, there. It, it, but I wonder right, if this is like a similar. That's a similar yeah. Thing. Well, they, it, that's John's point. We're the anointed country. We're God yeah. gave us this beautiful island. We don't even have borders with anybody else. And you know, yeah. we, we've done all this terrific stuff. And we that this it's like the Puritans in New England, the city on the hill. Yeah. It's this is our you know uh, mm -hmm. great. Um, witness to God's grace upon us, kind of. I was almost, I was raised an atheist, but I was almost a Presbyterian minister when I was younger. Huh? And I also, I also wrote a book on Herman Melville and comparative religion. So I'm kind of a little of this stuff. I'm kind of a nerd for this, <laughs> even though I'm an atheist now, but I, um, I kind of have, uh, I know a little bit about this, if you'll forgive hmm. me. No, that's wonderful. Of course, it's interesting you say the, the thing about borders, because as we'll see in all the history plays, uh, England usually has a really big problem when it forgets that it actually does border Wales and Scotland. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that they are independent countries that would like to be self-governing as opposed to colonially ruled by the English. But yes, I totally agree with you. <laughs> Shall we? Uh, let's continue. The king has come deal mildly with his youth, for young hot cults being raged do rage the more. How fares our noble uncle Lancaster? What comfort, man, howest with aged gaunt? Oh, how that name befits my composition. Old gaunt indeed, and gaunt in being old. Within me grief hath kept a tedious fast, and who abstains from meat that is not gaunt? For sleeping England long time have I watched, Watching breeds leanness, leanness is all gaunt. The pleasure that some fathers feed upon is my strict fast. I mean my children's looks, and therein fasting hast thou made me gaunt. Gaunt am I for the grave, gaunt as a grave, whose hollow womb inherits naught but bones. Can sick men play so nicely with their names? No, misery makes sport to mock itself. Since thou dost seek to kill my name in me, I mock my name, great king, to flatter thee. Should dying men flatter with those that live? No, no. Men living flatter those that die. Thou, now a-dying, sayest thou flatterest me. Oh, no. Thou diest, though I the sicker be. I am in health. I breathe and see thee ill. Now he that made me knows I see thee ill. Ill in myself to see, and in thee seeing ill. Thy deathbed is no lesser than thy land, wherein thou liest in reputation sick. And thou, too careless patient as thou art, commits thy anointed body to the cure of those physicians that first wounded thee. A thousand flatterers sit within thy crown, whose compass is no bigger than thy head, and yet encaged in so small a verge, the waste is no whit lesser than thy land. Oh, had thy grandsire with a prophet's eye seen how his son's son should destroy his sons, from forth they reach, from forth thy reach, he would have laid thy shame, deposing thee before thou wert possessed, which art possessed now to depose thyself. Why, cousin, wert thou regent of the world, it were a shame to let this land by lease. But for thy word enjoying but this land, it is not more than shame to shame it so. Landlord of England art thou now, not king, 
Thy state of law is bounded to the law, and thou... A lunatic lean-witted fool, presuming on an ague's privilege, darest with thy frozen admonition, make pale our cheek, chasing the royal blood with fury from his native residence. Now by my seat's right royal majesty, wert thou not brother to great Edward's son, this tongue that runs so roundly in thy head, should run thy head from thy unreverent shoulders. Oh, spare me not my brother Edward's son, for that I was his father Edward's son. That blood already, like the pelican, hast thou tapped out and drunkenly caroused. My brother Gloucester, plain, well-meaning soul, whom fair befall in heaven amongst happy souls, may be a precedent and a witness good that thou respect'st not spilling Edward's blood. Join with the present sickness that I have, and thy unkindness be like a crooked age to crop at once a too young withered flower. Live in thy shame, but die not shame with thee. These words hereafter thy tormentors be. Convey me to my bed, then to my grave. Love they to live that love and honor have. And let them die that age and sullens have. For both hast thou, and both become the grave. I'm just going to pause here because I want to go back. I see that we have the repetition of that image, the gorger, the seabird, with the pelican. The pelican, the fed, it's the pelican in the myth. The pelican feeds its young of its own blood. On its own blood, right? Yeah, and and, and Lear calls his daughters, you pelican daughters, because you're wounding me (laughs) and I'm feeding you with my blood. But I think it also just brings up something that we're going to see a lot, which is the mingling of the sort of two meanings of blood well, three meanings of blood, really. Literal blood, uh, blood that connects us all through family, and then blood having to do with violence. And so mm-hmm. all of these three things just keep getting, their meanings keep shifting as we, as we go and becoming more and more intertangled. Um, I think it's really important. I, I think this is just because I've been listening to a lot of like radical political podcasts, but I really have begun to see all of these, um, the history plays as being so much about property and Mm -hmm. land rights. Like this is what causes people to, you know, kill each other and fight civil wars is is about who, whose land is this, you know? (laughs) And, um, and it is definitely, I mean, it's just this, the, the repetition of the family, the son, brother, grandsire, all these, these titles being thrown around but also that land just keeps appearing. And it is it does mean country, but it also really means who has the rights over this land um, as well. So that's just something that I wanted to, to point out. And that is the end of Gaunt. I he's mean, gone. John of Gaunt now. John of Gaunt, yeah. Yes. I mean, kind of a crazy character to have that scene. Just pack this huge punch, get a couple good speeches in, and then like, just well, in a way, doesn't he kind of represent a, a, a uh, an older view? I mean, um, Richard could almost say, you know, uh, you know, okay, uh, um, what is it? Okay, uh, what the, what's the phrase for the old timers now? Um, okay, uh, boomer. <laughs> yeah, okay, boomer. I mean, that, right? It's like you know, get out of here, hit the road, and you know, you you're you're an anachronism because there's a new thing. Ha- but not so much that Richard believes. Well, Richard's doing it, but that. That's the way the play will play out. Hmm. It's funny, I was thinking in a way, what's curious about this scene and John in particular in his speech, especially the long one about, you know, yeah, the good old days and all the things, is that in the play, it seems desperate and, and uh, kind of, as I'm saying, kind of 
you know, impractical and dated, but for the Elizabethan audience who had just vanquished the Armada very recently and who were, you know, in the process of imperialistically expanding, you know, throughout the world, this was like, yeah, you know, that was a time and we overcame what you're talking about, John, and we're better now than we ever were, kind of, in a way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I I think that's that's very valid. And I think something that's interesting is that I I think just thinking about what's going to happen, that this scene must have a very huge impact on Richard, because the next time we see Richard, he seems to take over this imagery of bones and land and graves and all of this stuff that John of Gaunt is talking about. It's like he transfers all of his thoughts and images to Richard. I mean, it does say these words hereafter, thy Thy tormentors be. Beautiful. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Good point. Very good point. Hollowness and graves and earth and people treading over buried people's heads, you know, all of these ideas are going to reemerge in in, in very shortly. Wonderful. I also just uh, learned from, from doing some original pronunciation work that grave used to rhyme with have, so it was grav. Mm which I think is just super cool <laughs> to my grav. <laughs> like, it's just really, it has like we, a really- Do you want us to change? It sounds like a to, shovel. Put me in my grav. Sh- do you want me to change that? <laughs> no, 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 no. Keep, do, I just really, that was one of my, the rhymes that I learned that I particularly enjoyed. I just wanted to share that. <laughs> I do beseech your majesty, impute his words to wayward sickliness and age in him. He loves you on my life and holds you dear as Harry, Duke of Hereford, were he here. Right, you say true. As Hereford's love, so his. As theirs, so mine, and I'll be as it is. Please. Old Gaunt commends him to your majesty. What says he? Nay, nothing. All is said. His tongue is now a stringless instrument. Words, life, and all old Lancaster hath spent. Be York the next that must be bankrupt so. Though death be poor, it ends a mortal woe. The ripest fruit first falls, and so doth he. His time is spent, our pilgrimage must be. So much for that. Now for our Irish wars. We must supplant those rough, rug-headed kerns, which live like venom where no venom else, but only they have privilege to live. And for these great affairs do ask some charge. Towards our assistance we do seize to us the plate, Coin, revenues, and movables, whereof our Uncle Gaunt did stand possessed. That was a really short mourning period. I just wanted to point out, <laughs> your uncle dies so much for that. Like, amazing. Anyway. <laughs> how long shall I be patient? Ah, how long shall tender duty make me suffer wrong? Not Gloucester's death, nor Hereford's banishment, nor Gaunt's rebukes, nor England's private wrongs, nor the prevention of poor Bolingbroke about his marriage, nor mine own disgrace, have ever made me sour my patient cheek or bend one wrinkle on my sovereign's face. I am the last of noble Edward's sons, of whom thy father, Prince of Wales, was first. In war was never lion raged more fierce, in peace was never gentle lamb more mild, than was that young and princely gentleman. His face thou hast, for even so looked he accomplished with the number of thy hours. But when he frowned, it was against the French, 
and not against his friends. His noble hand did win what he did spend, and spent not that which his triumphant father's hand had won. His hands were guilty of no kindred blood, but bloody with the enemies of his kin. O oh, Richard, York is too far gone with grief, or else he never would compare between. Why, uncle, what's the matter? Oh, my liege, pardon me, if you please. If not, I pleased not to be pardoned, am content with all. Seek you to seize and gripe into your hands the royalties and rights of banished Hereford? Is not Gaunt dead? And doth not Hereford live? Was not Gaunt just? And is not Harry true? Did not the one deserve to have an heir? Is not his heir a well-deserving son? Take Hereford's rights away, and take from time his charters and his customary rights. Let not tomorrow then ensue today. Be not thyself. For how art thou a king, but by fair sequence and succession? Now afore God, God forbid I say true, if you do wrongfully seize Hereford's rights. Call in the letters patents that he hath by his attorneys general to sue his livery and deny his offered homage. You pluck a thousand dangers on your head. You loose a thousand well-disposed hearts and prick my tender patience to those thoughts which honor and allegiance cannot think. Think what you will. We seize into our hands his plate, his goods, his money, and his lands. I'll not be by the while. My liege, farewell. What will ensue hereof there's none can tell, but by bad courses may be understood that their events can never fall out good. Lovely. Um, what do we think of, what do we think of York? Tell us about York's journey he's gone on for this little scene so far, Carol. Oh, he's done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, All about it. <laughs> I, I, I think in a way he was brusque to gaunt about the possibilities, but I don't think even he believed it was going to be like so much for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so he's making his own eloquent plea for Richard to be a mensch. <laughs> and his his grievances are much more specific than yeah. Gaunt's, which which yeah. I just noticed when you were reading it. I was like, oh, these are this is like a point by point. You are doing this wrong. Don't do that. Don't do that. And don't do that. <laughs> you know. Which is more interesting when he kind of gives that all up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he is really specific. I, I, I love the uh, trademark, Ariana's trademark, implied antithesis of his face thou hast. Like, there, you're, you're missing the other half of that antithesis. But it's like, it's such a great, like, well, you'll look like him. But that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And you know Richard just hates that. Oh, yeah, that, totally. Because it, is it... The Black Prince? Yes, yes. Yeah, of course. So, oof. Yeah. That's got to be, you know, a big shadow to live under. Oh, my sure. God. Yes. Hero in the, the Hundred Years' War as your, as your dad. That's got a, no, that's definitely got some da dad issues and sort of ruled by a whole bunch of very ambitious uncles, too. I mean, that's, that can't be easy. That can't be an easy upbringing. 
<laughs> I, I also love that the first thing he says to York is like, what's, what's the matter? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's the response after Gaunt just died and, you know. Yeah. That's so a wonderful cream on the, the coffee and the whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> what's yeah. going on? Why are you upset? <laughs> you watch, uh, what is it? The Great Thing, yeah. Because right? he has some hardcore Peter parallels with the like Peter the Great son, Captain the Great's totally, husband yeah. vibe. Yes. <laughs> question, question, all right. How, how much time has passed since Harry's been banished? Well, that's a great question. Did they ever say? Um, a couple years. In, in real life, couple a years. couple years. But what is really fun about the scene is that it starts off with Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster alive, and ends with, as we're going to just see, the Lord's already knowing that Henry is coming back to claim the land that Richard just, in this very scene, it's like Shakespeare's Which, version of like a montage, like you know we're all absolutely right. But that's what like, I'm trying. Yeah, it, it, what's <laughs> wonderful is I think is pointed out in the in the Shakespeare's English King is, is that usually the audience doesn't notice that like it's not possible for that to have happened within one scene when you're watching <laughs> the play. But if you sort of stop and go, wait a second, he just confiscated and like. One page later, they know, and no time has... Okay, all right, whatever. <laughs> and also, just, like, timing-wise, it feels like Gaunt dies, like, the day after his son leaves yeah. the country. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> and he's totally, like, he's like projecting gone, it. Gone. He's like, yeah. I'm gonna die before my son comes back. And then you see him one more time, and then he's like, all right, bye. <laughs> time for my before-intermission beer. Like, <laughs> I'll be off. But, yeah, that's a, it's a great question, Mike. It's very compressed but it does seem for dramatic purposes um, that it, it, it is compressed from several years to about like a couple of days. Also interesting that historically they think that th this was Richard's downfall, the decision to take away, it wasn't banishing him, it was taking away his land rights, <laughs> taking his property because that made all the nobles nervous. Because they're like, wait, if he can do that, can't he just take my property too? Let's see, let's see that little time warp again. Go Bushy to the Earl of Wiltshire straight. Bid him repair us to uh, bid him repair to us to Ellie House to see this business. Tomorrow next, we will for Ireland, and tis time, I trow. And we create an absence of ourself, our Uncle York, Lord Governor of England. For he is just and always loved us well. Come on, our queen. Tomorrow we must part. Be merry, for our time of stay is short. So why, why does he do that after what just happened? Any thoughts? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> Someone just lectured me. I'm leaving the country. Who am I going to leave in charge? I don't know, because it's. I found it interesting that, yeah, York like lectures him and then he kind of brushes him off. Like he doesn't think there are any consequences because even though he may think he's like better than York in so many ways, there is still consequences to this. So maybe mm. he's like backpedaling in a way, like trying to be like, yeah, just try to cover all his bases in some backwards way. He thinks I'll like, 
get York off his back, maybe. Well, that makes sense that he's like, well, you might have a point. Maybe, maybe you have some ideas about how to rule. <laughs> Go ahead. I don't like doing it anyway. <laughs> um, I also think it's, it's fun. I, and this could just be my complete fancy, but um, I think business used to be pronounced busyness which is just like the cutest thing ever. And I wish that um, when we, when people talk about going to business school, you're like, oh, you go to business school? Cool. <laughs> I'm a I just think man. that would like really <laughs> make business in general, just like much more palatable somehow, but <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> okay, so now we have the Lords alone. Well, Lords, the Duke of Lancaster is dead. And living, too, for now his son is Duke. Barely entitled, not in revenues. Richly in both, if justice had her right. My heart is great, but it must break with silence ere it be disburdened with a liberal tongue. Nay, speak thy mind, and let him ne'er speak more that speaks thy words again to do thee harm. Tend that thou would speak to the Duke of Hereford? If it be so, out with it boldly, man. Quick is mine ear to hear of good towards him. No good at all that I can do for him, unless you call it good to pity him, bereft and gelded of his patrimony. Now, afore God, to shame such wrongs are born, in him a royal prince and many more, of noble blood in this declining land. The king is not himself, but basely led by flatterers, and what they will inform merely in hate against any of us all that will the king severely prosecute against us, our lives, our children, and our heirs. The commons hath he, is this pilled or piled? It's a really good question. Um, the root of the word is pillaged or like robbed. Ooh, so I think pilled. you could, um, yeah. I think you could use pilled um, or, or, but also piled has a more contemporary sense of like, he's piled these taxes on as well. So I, I'm going to leave it a uh, dealer's choice. <laughs> Ooh, I think I like pilled. Yeah. The commons hath he pilled with grievous taxes and quite lost their hearts. The nobles hath he fined for ancient quarrels and quite lost their hearts. And daily new exactions are devised as blanks, benevolences, and I what not what. But what a God's name doth become of this. Wars hath not wasted it, for ward he hath not, but basely yielded upon compromise that which his noble ancestors achieved with blows. More hath he spent in peace in wars. The Earl of Wiltshire hath the realm and farm. The king's grown bankrupt like a broken man. Reproach and disillusion hangeth over him. He hath not money for these Irish wars. His burdenous taxations notwithstanding, but by the robbing of the banished duke. His noble kinsman, most degenerate king. But lords, we hear this fearful tempest sing, yet seek no shelter to avoid the storm. We see the wind sit sore upon our sails, and yet we strike not, but securely perish. We see the very rack that we must suffer, and unavoided is the danger now, for suffering so the causes of our rack. Not so. Even through the hollow eyes of death, I spy life peering. But I dare not say how near the tidings of our comfort is. This is so great. I just wanted to, to share that I, I think it's so wonderful that it's like these lords are so in sync that they just can, one of them builds an image, starts to build an image, and then the other one takes it up and builds it a little bit more, which I think is, is a really 
is a way of, of Shakespeare sort of telling us that these people are thinking the same way. Like they, they're sharing their view of the world in this really interesting way. Um, and then the strike knot is really interesting. I was sort of like, oh, strike, you know, like when you strike at the end of a production. And this kind of means the same thing, but it had to do specifically with sails that if you see a storm coming, you strike the sail, you lower it down so that it doesn't huh. rip in, uh, you know, anyway. I just thought that was interesting and that the hollow to do with death. I love that Northumberland here is, is giving us an image again that Richard is going to, you know, within the hollow crown, um, that famous, famous, famous speech that we're going to get to in Act 3, um, that here we have again these repeated images of hollowness and death and blood that are, even though it's all framed in this very lyrical rhetoric the actual imagery of this play is really dark and really um kind of creepy just just wanted to put it out here this play is creepy <laughs> also to talk about how they like seem like they're so on point with each other this is really lame but it definitely reminded me of the second act of hamilton where it's like burr and madison and jefferson they're like all in sync and then they obviously start singing like i feel like in the scene that like someone's about to break into song just because <laughs> oh yeah that's great. i love that that's great <laughs> that is amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah the feeling of a musical very much where just sort of like you can tell everybody is together because they all know the same lyrics <laughs> This is awesome. I love it. <laughs> Nay, let us share thy thoughts as thou dost ours. Be confident to speak, Northumberland. We three are but thyself, and speaking so, thy words are but his thoughts. Therefore be bold. Then thus I have heard from Le Pont Blanc, a bay in Brittany received intelligence that Harry, Duke of Hereford, Reynold, Lord Cornham, Thomas, son and heir to the Earl of Arundel, that late broke from the Duke of Exeter, his brother, Archbishop, Dis that late broke from the Duke of Exeter, his brother, Archbishop, late of Canterbury, Sir Thomas Erpingham, Sir John Ramston, Sir John Norbury, Sir Robert Walterton, and Francis Coynt, all these well furnished by the Duke of Britain, Brittany, Britain, the Duke of Britain. With yeah, I think, I think that's, I just love, that was a great list there, Stephen. Like, my God. <laughs> Gosh, memorizing that. Like, I, know, just, I like, was just going to say, I do not, <laughs> I do not envy the person who has to, who has to memorize that. They, they must be very important names somehow, like that, that people knew who these people were, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, I would I say Irpingham is a very Francis Coin. Don't forget about Francis. That was really nice. <laughs> All these well furnished by the Duke of Britannia with eight tall ships, 3,000 men of war are making hither with all due expedience and shortly mean to touch our northern shore. Perhaps they had ere this, but that they stay the first departing of the king for Ireland. If then we shall shake off our slavish yoke, imp out our drooping country's broken wing, redeem from broken the blemished crown, wipe off the dust that hides our scepter's guilt, and make high majesty look like itself? Away with me, in post to Ravensburg. But if you faint, as fearing to do so, stay and be secret, and myself will go. The horse, to horse, urge doubts to them that fear. Hold out my horse, and I will first be there. Awesome. 
I think it's amazing how quickly the nobility is disposed to support Henry, right? And we saw this, I, I meant to say something in act one, when the, the, the Lord Marshal, who's the one who's just been announcing things, all of a sudden at the end, he says, I'm going with you. You know, it, it's like, there's something about Bolingbroke that like makes people want to follow him and do things to help him. Which is which is interesting. Uh, imp out, what a wonderful image. I, I I couldn't figure out what that had to do with, and I looked it up, and it has to do with falconry. And if a bird of prey is injured, it's like it's like repairing a broken wing. Um, and there's a lot of falconry. We had a little bit of falconry image imagery in the in the first act. I remember as well. But yeah, yeah a lot of bird stuff. A lot of bird yeah. stuff in that play. Great. That was that was a that was my bird squawk. Yeah. Um, Ariana, yes, yes. A, a quick point about what you're saying about people lining up behind Hereford. This is just a thought off the top of my head, but in a way that underscores this transition of the way the king is perceived from someone that everyone has to follow and worship because God put him there, as opposed to a powerful personality, somebody who can attract various people from different backgrounds and different. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a transfer, a paradigm shift almost from the older model to a new you know, more active and dynamic king kind of thing. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And, and Henry Bolingbroke is always, I mean, he's called quite one of the most wonderful moments in Henry IV Part One by Hotspur. He calls him a vile politician. Um, <laughs> there is something very political about, about yeah. Henry. He doesn't, you know, even the way, the way all of his speeches, which we're going to get to in Henry IV Part One and Two, to Hal, he sort of, it's like he, he opens the curtain on his sort of strategy and you realize how much strategy went into the way in which he conducts himself. And I actually, I'm, I'm quite interested to see your experience, Mike, of going through and playing this character because I, I find him on the page to be a very opaque character. Like I just don't, he doesn't seem to really wear his heart on his sleeve. And I find it very difficult to sort of figure the character out. So I'm really curious to hear your thoughts as, as you get to sort of read these words as we go through. Because I, I really find him to be a very, very um, difficult, opaque character to, to get to know. That sounds a little bit yeah. odd, but- No, it sort of makes sense. Richard I mean, is, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Richard is much easier to sort of get to know because yeah. Richard doesn't hide a lot of stuff, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very there, yeah. Steven, did you, did you have something? I, I don't know. I just, I think Bolingbroke's just a straight shooter. Hmm. I mean, he doesn't <laughs> talk a lot, right? Just like Hal goes like, I am a soldier. Not, you know, he's like, he's like doing all the like wooing things to, to Kate, to Catherine. And he's like, I'm a soldier, not a wooer. And then he goes through and he woos very successfully. But like <laughs> Bolingbroke isn't like he, I don't think he's a politician yet. I hmm. think that he doesn't like Richard and doesn't like having his land stolen and like doesn't need much more to say. I don't know. Interesting. I, I agree. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. I also think like this, I feel like this play is really about Bolingbroke. It's, it's, this is the play. I mean, he's, this is the play that turns him into Henry the fourth, literally, but also like, he goes I feel like he goes from being a straight shooter to being a politician mm. and he you know he's haunted by the death of Richard which he very much was I think historically also right yeah I feel like 
he undergoes the biggest change in maybe any of Shakespeare's characters of like this, yeah, as we'll see in this play, I guess. And that's a sort of a trend of the histories, isn't it? Like, I feel like with so many of the histories, the histories aren't actually really about the person who they're named after. Very so much. so often it feels like yeah like it's it's a right. secondary I suppose the a person who's not in the name of the play who really gets like the arc yeah over the I mean because it's like the oh. end of that person and then like yeah and the the beginning of the next one mm-hmm. I think um, except for much. the two Richards I think in all the other history plays the title character is not the biggest part in the play. Um, but Henry Richard the Third and Richard the Second definitely no, Henry, are. Henry Five's a hundred percent the biggest. Oh yes, right? yes, absolutely. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Um, I was thinking because I'm working on King John right now of King John and the two Henrys and the Henry Six plays, which I very much That's associate as like the <laughs> bastard in uh, King John is a bigger part than King John and. Um, you know, Falstaff and Hotspur and Hal are all bigger <laughs> than Henry the Fourth. And, uh, and the, the Henry VI plays have, have different figures that sort of bubble up to the top and then get mm. killed and then a new person bubbles up. But yeah, it's it is, it is, that's that's fascinating about it being, as you say, Zoe, the end of, of that person. Um, that's, really, that's really interesting. Okay, wonderful. So now we're, we're back to the, the other nobles. Richard is left for Ireland. This is the other nobles. Um, with our lovely Queen Isabel, who historically was, I believe, like seven or nine. But I'm really glad that she isn't seven or nine in this play, because that would just be so disturbing. Good. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> proof of that edit, Shakespeare. Yeah, nice editing. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Madam, your majesty is too much too much sad. You promised when you parted with the king to lay aside life-harming heaviness and entertain a cheerful disposition. To please the king I did, to please myself, I cannot do it. Yet I know no cause why I should welcome such a guest as grief, save bidding farewell to so sweet a guest as my sweet Richard. Yet again methinks some unborn sorrow ripe in fortune's womb is coming towards me, and my inward soul with nothing trembles at something it grieves more than with parting from my lord the king. Each substance of a grief hath twenty shadows, which shows like grief itself, but is not so. For sorrow's eyes glazed with blinding tears divides one thing entire to many objects, like perspectives, which rightly gazed upon, show nothing but confusion, eyed awry, distinguish form. So your sweet majesty, looking awry upon your lord's departure, find shapes of grief more than himself to wail, which, looked on as it is, is not but shadows of what it is not. Then, thrice gracious queen, more than your lord's departure weep not, more is not seen, or if it be, tis with false sorrow's eye, which for things true weeps, things imaginary. I'm going to pause there because that is one heck of a speech you got. Um, It sure is. (laughs) (laughs) That is, um, I remember in a rehearsal with a director going, okay, let's, let's like figure this out. What is going on in this speech? (laughs) And I think the, the key to understanding this speech has to do with what is a, a perspective or as it might have been said, perspectives. Um, has anyone ever seen the painting of the, the two, it's a, it's a Holbein painting where there's the two men and there's all the sort of books and scrolls on the table. And then there's this strange thing at the bottom of the picture that doesn't look like anything. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And I'll. And you turn uh, to the side, and it's. Yes. It's a skull, right? <laughs> if oh, you fantastic. look at, if you look uh, yeah. at, instead of looking at the picture like this, if you look at it like this, it looks like a skull. And I think that's what that's what Bushy's talking about. Um, and when I do post this, I will be sure to um, to post that painting. <laughs> And you can all turn your computer screen sideways so you can see it in the right way. But it's kind of incredible because it just looks like you, you have no idea what it is. It's just this blob. And then you look at it sideways in, in the museum and all of a sudden it materializes into this skull. It's really creepy. So I think that's, that has to do with eye to rye, looking at it from not quite the normal straight on it distinguishes the form. Um, but there's, there's a really interesting lineage here we can trace of sorrow and grief that the queen keeps talking about sorrow and grief and later she's going to say she's the, the midwife, she's the, uh, the mother essentially of woe and that, and that uh, when green comes in with news, green is the midwife to this baby grief. <laughs> And this is uh, something I'm going to be working on King John in a, in, a, in a week or so. And we get to Constance talking about grief filling up the room of her absent child. It's something that the women in these history plays talk about a lot. It's like they have so much loss that grief suddenly begins to manifest as their partners or their, their fathers and mothers and children and all of these people. So I just wanted to sort of point that out in, in this. And I, I think... When you know what the perspectives are, it, it helps to make more sense of this very strange speech. <laughs> yeah. It also feels yeah, that, like that definitely makes way more sense. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> it, it also feels like this is kind of like to look at through look at this through a modern lens. It kind of feels like everything about like mansplaining in a way, because Bushy comes in and is like, smile. And then he's like, you're not really feeling that way. Like gaslighting the queen in a way. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, can't the queen just feels what she fucking feels? Yeah. <laughs> go away. It's like so Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I love that, I love her qualification at the beginning. Like you pro, you know, Bushy's like, you promised that you'd be happy. And she's like, yeah. I, I said that for him. I didn't say that for me. You know, it's such a wonderful, you know, little touch about the sort of ways in which women have to perform constantly um, in these roles. It's really, it's really fascinating. It's um, funny because it also, I was, I was sort of going to say, I'm, I guess I'm going to say two opposite things. <laughs> I find the queen and Richard, like their relationship really interesting, which we'll see a little bit more of later at the end, really. Because yeah. you don't see them together, but she does like give him a lot of credit. And, you know, she's basically saying like, I'm grieving him leaving. And, every, and the other thing I was going to say is that sort of opens up an opportunity for comedy with Bushy being like, really? Like that guy? That's the guy <laughs> you're sad about? <laughs> um, so that's, I think that, yeah, you can sort of hold both of those. But it does give a peek into like, what is what is Richard and the Queen like? What are they like actually together? Mm -hmm. Or what do they share? You know, if those feelings are true for her, then what does that mean about how he is with her? And then the other side, like, you know, Bushy and, and the other nobles being like, oh, this guy. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> 
I think that's, that's a wonderful point. And I think that there is something about, this is kind of the first time we hear about somebody missing and loving Richard in the play. You know, there's, so in a way she is teaching us, Queen Isabel is teaching us to feel for Richard, to, to, to worry about him, which is something we will do, but later in the play. And so far what we've seen of Richard, he's not a very sympathetic character at all. He's, he's, he's a little bit thoughtless in his, in his behavior. Um, so, but the fact that we have this woman who is very well-spoken, who is, who is speaking well of him, I think gives us a different perspective as it were on him that we haven't seen yet. Um, we will see and we'll, he'll, he'll, he'll draw us in with his amazing language. But this is like such a wonderful, I think first glimpse of that. It may be so, but yet my inward soul persuades me it is otherwise. Howe'er it be, I cannot but be sad. So heavy sad as though unthinking thinking or no thought I think makes me with heavy nothing faint and shrink. Tis nothing but conceit, my gracious lady. Tis nothing less. Conceit is still derived from, from some forefather grief. Mine is not so, for nothing hath begot my something grief, or something hath the nothing that I grieve. Tis in reversion that I do possess, but what it is, that is not yet known. What? I cannot name. Tis nameless woe, I what. God save your majesty, and well met, gentlemen. I hope the king is not yet shipped for Ireland. Why hopes thou so? Tis better hope he is, for his designs crave haste, his haste good hope. Then wherefore dost thou hope he is not shipped? That he, our hope, might have retired his power and driven into despair an enemy's hope, who strongly hath set footing in this land. The banished Bolingbroke repeals himself and with uplifted arms is safe arrived at Ravensburg. Now God in heaven forbid. Ah, madam, tis too true. And that is worse, the Lord Northumberland, his son, young Harry Percy, the Lords of Ross, Beaumont, and Willoughby, with all their powerful friends, are fled to him. Why have you not proclaim proclaimed Northumberland and all the rest revolted faction traitors? We have. Whereupon the Earl of Worcester? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Worcester. Uh, Worcester. This is the same Worcester, Worcester from Henry the Fourth. Oh, nice. Uh, whereupon the Earl of Worcester hath broken his staff, resigned his stewardship, and all the household servants fled with him to Bolingbroke. So Green, thou art the midwife to my woe, and Bolingbroke my sorrow's dismal heir. Now hath my soul brought forth her prodigy, and I, a gasping new-delivered mother, have woe to woe, sorrow to sorrow joined. Despair not, madam. Who shall hinder me? I will despair and be at enmity with cozening hope. He is a flatterer, a parasite, a keeper back of death, who gently would dissolve the bands of life, which false hope lingers in extremity. Wow. <laughs> and so this is, this is the basis of the conflict between the rebels and the royals in Henry IV, one, yeah? The fact that the rebels want, didn't like the fact that Richard was deposed? Is that well, correct? Well, it's, it it's a great question. Essentially, so as we saw Northumberland, who appears, who is Hotspur's father, appears um, in the previous scene and is one of the early supporters of Bolingbroke. But as you can see, he is very much supporting his rights to his land. Now, they were very pro Bolingbroke becoming king when he became king, but then didn't really feel like 
they kind of got a good bargain from that, which is part of the reason that they, there, I mean, it's kind of amazing how much it's like Game of Thrones, like how much George R. R. Martin took from the history plays, because really it's like the Northumberlands are the Starks. Like they're always fighting the wildlings and AKA the Scots and they're, they're the border towns, you know, they're the, the force that is keeping, and they're so sick of being told what to do from London and from the King. And it's just like, it's kind of amazing, like how everything maps um, onto it. But it's, but at this point, the Northumberland family, which was, I think the second wealthiest after the Lancaster family, right, Gaunt, because Gaunt was the wealthiest right, noble yeah. person in the kingdom, <clears throat> that they, obviously it's, it's very much in their, it, they would be very concerned if the largest estate in England could just be taken by the king because they're the second largest amount of money. So if, if he can just, whoosh, if he can take away someone else's land and, and rights and money, he can take theirs away. So in this, I, I see it both as like the, the principle of the thing is why they joined Bolingbroke, but also it makes strategic sense uh, for them to align themselves with, with him as well. Thank you, Carol. You're welcome. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely right. We're, we're actually going to get this amazing in, in Henry IV. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of remembering events that happen in this play in the later plays. In Henry IV, part one, Hotspur is remembering when he first bowed his knee unto Bolingbroke before he was king. And uh, right before Bolingbroke dies in Henry IV, part two, he has this recollection of Richard yelling at Northumberland and calling him a ladder, you know, that, that you're, you know, so, so these, these characters have such a profound effect upon each other, you know, in the immediate sense, but also in their memories, in the remembrances, they, they, they kind of just haunt each other, uh, haunted by the ghost they have deposed, as it were. <laughs> I, just, I just did a radio play of Henry IV where I read for Worcester. And so it is really, yeah, it's so interesting to see, to like dial it back in this play and how, again, it forms Bolingbroke because all Worcester talks about in Henry IV is like, he never trusted me since I betrayed Richard. What's the big deal? And it sort of yeah. like breeds that sense of distrust that Henry IV shows in, you know, in all of the rest of his plays, kind of this like paranoia almost. And it's because, you know, he's, and it sort of starts with this play of people, you know, switching sides, like at the drop of the hat, at the drop of a hat. And I'm really like taking in how quickly this is moving, <laughs> which I never think of. Like, I never think of that when it comes to this play, but it is like, every other scene is like, oh, Bolingbroke's back. Oh, we're on his side. Oh, yeah. like, there's no dilly dallying. There's no like, big speeches of people with any kind of inner turmoil about it. It's very like, absolutely. It's very expositional. Like the, 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 especially this act, it's just like a lot of things happen and a lot of things is, is people coming in and telling news about things that have just happened and everyone being like, oh my God, it's happened. What? Um, so there, there's, there's a lot of that. And in fact, here we're going to, we're going to have the Duke of York come in and, and tell us more news. And I yes. also just wanted to, to point out there are tons of Alexandrins in this scene. 
And that's just a very fancy word for a, a normal line of a blank verse that has a whole extra foot. So it has, instead of 10 syllables in the line, it has 12 syllables. And they're, they're not, you know, they appear in Shakespeare, but in this scene so far, we've had one, two, three, four, five, which is kind of unusual for, for a scene to have that many. And I, I don't know what the significance of that is, but I, I just thought I would point out that rhythmically this scene is a little bit, a little bit out there. All right. Here comes the Duke of York. With signs of war about his aged neck, oh, full of careful business are his looks. Uncle, for God's sake, speak comfortable words. Should I do so, I should belie my thought. Comfort then, where nothing lives but crosses, cares, and others come to make him lose at home. Here am I left to underprop his land, who weak with age comes the sick hour that his surfeit made, and try his friends that flattered him. He was. Why so? Go all which way it will. The nobles, they are fled. The commons, they are cold. Will, I fear, revolt on Hereford's side. Sirrah, get thee to Pleshy, to my sister Gloucester. Bid her send me presently a thousand pound. Hold, take my ring. My lord, I had forgot to tell your lordship. Today, as I came by, I, I call it there, but I shall grieve you to report the rest. What is't, knave? An hour before I came, the duchess died. God for his mercy, what a tide of woes comes rushing on this woeful land at once. I know not what to do. I would to God so my untruth had not provoked him to it. The king had cut off my head with my brothers. What, are there no posts dispatched for Ireland? How shall we do for money for the wars? Cousin, I say, pray pardon me. Go get thee home. Provide some cart and the armor that is there. Gentlemen, you go muster men. If I know how, which way to order these affairs, thus disorderly thrust into my hands, never believe me. Both are my kinsmen. The one is my sovereign, whom both my oath and duty bid and the king, whom conscience and my kindred bids to write. Well, what we must do. Come, cousin, I'll dispose of you. Gentlemen, go muster up your men and meet me presently at Barclay Castle. I should depleshy too, but time will not permit. All is uneven, and everything is left at six and seven. Huh, I love that. Um, I, I love that York uh, changes. Sorry, everyone. My York goes from these big thoughts to the, just one line thought, one line thought, one line thought. I mean, I, I love how sort of disorganized the the realm is i mean it's kind of incredible i remember that when we did this scene um we got a lot of laughs because it was just like he's like i don't know do you want to go get people i don't know what to do do we have to get people men i get a cart i don't know <laughs> it's just like, there's something like a little bit incompetent about the manage of this realm <laughs> as we've already heard but it just seems like nobody knows what to do yeah, you know, it, it really gets that way after he he gets the bad news. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's been a lot of bad news, but but a after he's told the Duchess has died, that that's where he sort of just everything, you know, because before he was all like Mr. Antitheses and and it all kind of knits together. Yeah, that that first speech. It to is the interesting. Awesome. 
Yeah. It's just cool. That it's interesting that he is the only person that has publicly actually disagreed with the king and, and upbraided him. And he's the only person that stays faithful, that stays mm. true in this, you know, like his investment is clearly there and he's struggling with that, you know, mm. or he's, mm -hmm. I don't know, he's the person that we see that's still here. Um, and I, I don't know, the last, when I, uh, when we taught, when we were doing it in college, we talked a lot about the divine right of kings. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's interesting that he's the only person so far that we've seen that like, is seriously like struggling with the allegiance still in this point. Yeah, because they are they are pretty clearly divided already by this this point. What we we just had the I I think it's a wonderful you know all these the the doubling is so big in Shakespeare when you have a scene with three noblemen and you're going to have another scene with three noblemen coming right up and so we we just had Northumberland Ross and Willoughby who are going to side with Bolingbroke and now we have Bushy Baggett and Green who are siding with Richard. Um, and, and they have very similar concerns, but they, you know, they take different sides. And uh, I think it's, it's wonderful that we get, as we're just about to see with this wonderful little scene, one of my favorite words coming up is unpossible, just an amazing word. But we're gonna see all of the, the they, they really all have such similar concerns about well, who likes us and who hates us and who's going to support us and who's going to protect us and what makes the most sense to do. And I, I think uh, the, the higher the stakes are in these, in these scenes with the nobles, the more they have to lose, the more interesting I think the scenes become. The wind sits fair for news to go for Ireland, but none returns. For us to levy power proportionable to the enemy is all impossible. Besides, our nearness to the king in love is near the hate of those love not the king. And that is the wavering commons, for their love lies in their purses, and who and whoso empties them, by so much fills their hearts with deadly hate. Where the king stands generally condemned. If judgment lie in them, then so do we, because we ever have been near the king. Well, I will for refuge straight to Bristol Castle. The Earl of Wiltshire is already there. Thither will I with you, for little office will the hateful commoners perform for us, except, like curs, to tear us all to pieces. Will you go along with us? No, I will to Ireland, to his majesty. Farewell. If hearts presages be not vain, we three here part, that ne'er shall meet again. That's as York thrives to beat back Bolingbroke. Alas, poor duke, the task he undertakes is numbering sands and drinking oceans dry. Where, on, where one on his side fights, thousands will fly. Farewell at once, for once for all, and ever. Well, we may meet again. I fear me, never. Are these like weird little inverse witches? Like, I mean, not witches, but you know, like the, the sisters. The sisters three? That's yeah, um, I'm just saying, like, they sort of function similarly, like three parts of a larger whole. They've got Ooh, weird little lovely. rhyming things. <laughs> well, we may meet again. I fear me never. Anyway, no. I, I love this little scene. I love the image of like the task is numbering sands and drinking oceans dry. It's such a great, like very simple line of text that just is such a beautiful way of describing an impossible task. You know, it's just, it's wonderful. I think that Baggett is kind of, 
a little bit more politically astute here than the other two. It also is worth noting that he's the only one that's going to survive. I think Baggett is a, is a much more political realist than the other two. They're like, oh, we'll be okay. We're just going to go to a nice castle and we'll stay there and be fine. Baggett's like, I'm going to go back to where the king is and let's regroup. <laughs> so I think there's, uh, again, any, it's sometimes hard, I think, in, in, in these plays and, well, in a lot of Shakespeare plays to sort of distinguish character when you have this huge sort of roster of nobility that doesn't appear very often and it's, it becomes very easy for them all to be the same. But I think like picking out little things about who makes the best decision and who has the best judgment um, can really help to sort of distinguish each of the characters um, as well. I find that with all of the, the lords in Macbeth, you know, I love it when each of the lords are very well distinguished. You know, like if Ross is completely different from Lennox, is completely different from Menteith and Angus and all that. Um, because I think it, the more reality those characters have, the more you actually care about them and their kingdom doing, doing well. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and now look who's arrived. One king has departed and another soon to be king has arrived. How far is it my lord to Berkeley now? Leave me, noble lord. I am a stranger here in Gloucestershire. This, these high wind hills and rough, uneven ways draw out our miles and make them wearisome. And yet, your fair discourse hath been as sugar, making the hard way sweet and delectable. But I bethink me what a weary way from Ravensburg to Cotswold will be found in Ross and Willoughby wanting your company, which I protest hath very much beguiled the tediousness and process of my travel. But there's a sweetened with the hope to have the present benefit which I possess. And hope to joy is little less enjoyed than hope enjoyed. But this the weary lords shall make their way seem short as mine hath done, by sight of what I have, your me. Oh, I just wrote down from one group of flatterers to another. Right? We had Bushy, Baggett, and Green, who are commonly associated with being the flatterers that are surrounding King Richard. And now Northumberland, we have this, oh, your company is so sugar, sweet, delicious, delectable. I <laughs> yeah. love it. It's like, all right, all right, all right. You're coming on a little <laughs> strong there, Northumberland. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe just my opinion, but <laughs> you do say sweetened and use the word sugar quite a few times. Anyway. <laughs> uh, of much less value is my company than your good words. But who comes here? It is my son, young Harry Percy, sent from my brother Worcestershire whensoever. Harry, how fares your uncle? I had thought, my lord, to have learned his health of you. Why, is he not with the queen? No, my good lord. He hath forsook the court, broken his staff of office, and dispersed the household of the king. What was his reason? He was not so resolved when we last spake together. Because your lordship was proclaimed traitor. But he, my lord, is gone in spur to offer service to the Duke of Hereford and sent me over to Berkeley to discover what power the Duke of York had levered there, then with directions to repair to Ravensburg. Have you heard of Hereford, boy? No, my good lord, for that is not forgot which ne'er I did remember. To my knowledge, I never in my life did look on him. Then learn to know him now. This is the Duke. My gracious Lord, I tender you my service, such as it is, being tender, raw, and young, which elder days shall ripen and confirm to more approved service and desert. 
I thank thee, gentle Percy, and be sure I count myself in nothing else so happy as a, in a soul remembering my good friends. And as my fortune ripens with thy love, it shall be still thy true love's recompense. My heart this covenant makes, my hand thus seals it. How far is it to Berkeley? And what stir keeps good old York there with his men of war? There stands the castle by young by yon tuft of trees, manned with 300 men, as I have heard. And in it are the lords of York, Berkeley, and Seymour, none else of name and noble estimate. Here comes, here come the lords of Ross and Willoughby, bloody with spurring, fiery red with haste. Welcome, my lords. I what your love pursues a banished traitor. All my treasuries yet but unfelt thanks, which more enriched, shall be your love and labor's recompense. Your presence makes us rich, most noble lord. And far surmounts our labor to attain it. Evermore thanks the enchecker of the poor, which till my infant fortune comes to years, stands for my bounty. But who comes here? Is my lord Berkeley, as I guess. Is it, um, is it Berkeley I, or is it Barclay? I think it's Barclay. I think Barclay. it is. I think it's like Thanks. Barclay's bank, but just without the S. Yes. I also, oh. I, I, I just wanted to, I love that we meet Hotspur here. Wonderfully read, Amy, <laughs> Harry Percy. I love how sort of, he's just so different the way he speaks. It's yeah. just like, yeah, he gave me instructions. I was supposed to go to the thing and then the thing and then the thing. And uh, <laughs> um, do you know who this is? No, like, no. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, I didn't meet him. Oh, hi, nice to, you know, there's just like, yeah. he's so, there's no sort of my honey, sweet Lord. Like he doesn't speak yeah. that way. He just speaks differently <laughs> from Northumberland. Yeah. You can understand in Henry IV where he couldn't remember where he'd been because yeah. he's been all over the place and then going back and forth and, you know. That's wonderful that he's, he was too busy to sort of like plot out where he met. And it, it didn't matter where he met this guy. He's like, oh, hey, you can have my service. You know, it's, it's interesting also, I think the way that, um, that Henry thanks people. It's so, it's just so noble. It's so genteel, um, the way in which he, he thanks people for supporting him. I, I, I want your love pursues a banished traitor. Like it's so sort of self-deprecating, like, oh, me, I'm just a banished traitor. <laughs> like there's something kind of <laughs> there's something kind of funny about that to me. I, I also wanted to mention I, I know I had said that what means no, but it can also mean, depending on the context, learn. So in this sense, it could also be like, oh, I, I have just acquired the knowledge that you are offering your love to me. Uh, just a simple old banished traitor. Um, mm. Anyway. <laughs> um, so here's a Barclay's bank. Barclay <laughs> coming All in. All right. My Lord of Hereford, my message is to you. My Lord, my answer is to Lancaster. And I am come to seek that name in England. And I must find that title in your tongue before I make reply to aught you say. Mistake me not, my Lord. Tis not my meaning to raise one title of your honor out. To you, my lord, I come, what lord you will, from the most gracious regent of, the, of this land, the Duke of York, to know what pricks you on to take advantage of the absent time and fright our native peace with self-born arms. I shall not need transport my words by you. Here comes his grace in person, my noble uncle. Show me thy humble heart and not thy knee. 
whose duty is deceivable and false. My gracious uncle. Tut, tut. Grace me no grace, nor uncle me no uncle. I am no traitor's uncle, and that word grace in an ungracious mouth is but profane. Why have those banished and forbidden legs dared once to touch a dust of England's ground? But then, more why, why have they dared to march so many miles upon her peaceful bosom, frighting her pale-faced villages with war and ostentation of despised arms? Comest thou because the anointed king is hence? Why, foolish boy, the king is left behind, and in my loyal bosom lies his power. Were I but now the lord of such hot youth, as when brave Gaunt thy father and myself rescued the black prince, that young Mars of men, from forth the ranks of many thousand French, oh, then, how quickly should this arm of mine, now prisoner to the palsy, chastise thee, and minister correction to thy fault. My gracious uncle, let me know my fault. On what condition stands it and wherein? Even in condition of the worst degree. Sorry, Carol, I just wanted to, to, to pause for one second. And I, I love that the way that York will take words that are said previous, and then he'll just like start juggling them and just like use them in totally different ways. You know, gracious uncle, and then he, grace me no grace, and uncle me no gr ungracious. Like he just twists <laughs> the, the words that are thrown to him. But what I, I also love is how ballsy it is for Bolingbroke to repeat my gracious uncle after that whole thing like oh, he just provoked my... that's really ballsy to be to be like no my gracious uncle you know like he does it multiple more times too yeah i mean yeah. It's, it's fascinating <laughs> he's like no this is this is the title i'm i'm choosing to give you um it's, it's just really really interesting and i think tells us a lot about um uh, Bolingbroke. And gosh, so you just lectured Richard on Edward the Black Prince and now you're lecturing. I mean, was there, was their childhood just like war stories about <laughs> their uncle slash father? I mean, this must have been the way that everyone talks about Edward the Black Prince. It just seems like, yeah, it was, <laughs> he was a lot. <laughs> Even in condition of the worst degree, in gross rebellion and detested treason, Thou art a banished man, and here art come before the expiration of thy time in braving arms against thy sovereign. As I was banished, I was banished Hereford. But as I come, I come for Lancaster. And noble uncle, I beseech your grace, look on my wrongs with an indifferent eye. You are my father, for methinks in you I see old gaunt alive. And then my father, will you permit that I shall stand condemned, a wandering vagabond, my rights and royalties plucked from my arms perforce, and given way to upstart unthrifts? Wherefore was I born? If that my cousin be cousin king be king in England, it must be granted that I am Duke of Lancaster. You have a son, Omerl, my noble cousin. Had you first died and had been thus trod down, he should have found his uncle gaunt a father to rouse his wrongs and chase them to the bay. I am denied to sue my livery here, and yet my letters patents give me leave. My father's goods are all distrained and sold, and these and all are all amiss employed. What would you have me do? 
I am a subject and I challenge law. Attorneys are denied me and therefore personally, I lay my claim to my inheritance of free descent. Noble Duke hath been too much abused. It stands your grace upon to do him right. Base men by his endowments are made great. My lords of England, let me tell you this. I have had feeling of my cousin's wrongs, and labored all I could to do him right. But in this kind to come in braving arms, be his own carver and cut out his way to find out right with wrong, it may not be. And you that do abet him in this kind cherish rebellion and are rebels all. Mm. Yeah. The noble duke hath sworn mm. his coming is but for his own right, and for the right of that we have all sworn, uh, strongly sworn to give him aid. And let him never see joy that breaks that oath. Well, well, I see the issue of these arms. I cannot mend it. I must needs confess because my power is weak and all ill left. But if I could by him that gave me life, I would attach you all and make you stoop unto the sovereign mercy of the king. But since I cannot, be it known unto you, I do remain as neuter. So fare you well, unless you please to enter in the castle and there repose you for this night. And offer up. <laughs> Thank it. you, Carol. I love it. I love that. it. <laughs> I hate you all. I would, if you want, there's beds and food. Tea <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and little cakes and things to eat. And I'll leave a mint on your pillow, but I'll be really upset about it. Like, I just, like, York is just such a funny character. Oh, yeah. Man. I just, it's so silly. Changed um, his mind much? No, exactly. But he's like, but he has to be a good host. She's like, if I could, I would execute all of you for treason. But since I can't, why don't you come in and have a nice dinner and I'll take you in? Like, it's just remember uh when, when i was reading this is a couple years ago and unfortunately i am separated from my beloved uh, library of shakespeare editions with all those lovely essays and all that fun stuff but there was a they interviewed all these different directors in the rsc editions at the end about their sort of interpretation of the play and there were two there were two different directors that were being interviewed about the duke of york they, they asked this question so like who is the duke of york and one of the directors said well the duke of york is england the Duke of York is the whole country, is, is just trying to keep the peace and trying to figure out how to deal with all of these conflicting forces. And then they asked the other director and the other director said, oh no, the Duke of York is the most conniving political force in the entire play. And what I love is that you could totally do both of those completely opposing, you could, ha you could see both of those productions, you know, that th this that you could take a very, very cynical view of the, the back and forth, as, as I think you could very much map onto our own political landscape right, right now. And the, the people, you know, I, I'm just, uh, as we record this, I was just reading that I'm trying to figure out the status of the certification of the Michigan election. You know, it was like those in Wayne County, those Republican electors refused to certify, then they did certify, and now they're trying to uncertify the election results because of phone calls with certain people, you know, telling them what to do. And it's like, it's the same thing of like, what, 
what is York trying to get out of this situation, do you think, Carol? (laughs) (laughs) Which which line would would you like me to? Oh, I know, right? (laughs) It changes. And by, by the end of the scene, it's going to turn a little bit more. I, I actually had a had an ancestor who um, flipped sides so many times in the War of the Roses, and, and he was very nimble about it until he wasn't, and and then he lost his head. Wow! Uh, and I, I suppose that that was not uncommon that that you mm. were constantly assessing the lay of the land and figuring out, well, I better jump this way. I've got yeah. my house, my family, my castle, my lineage. I've got all these things that I've got to consider. Mm-hmm. And I feel like York is making that kind of turn at the end here. You know, well, I'm all going to be, I could, I'd like to kill you, but I'm going to be neuter. And <laughs> well, if, come on in. And well, I maybe I'll go with you. We'll see. Do we think that Bolingbroke knows he wants to be king yet? That's a great question. Boy, that's, that is the question. I don't, I don't think he does yet you you take his his i just come for my title he's like i'm just here for what i what what is rightfully mine and that's all i'm gonna do and i think i mean he'll figure it out he'll get there but i think once he sees how much support he has Mm. i think that sort of Mm -hmm. pushes him into another little bit of a direction it's like jesus these people are doing they're helping me for literally no pay (laughs) Like they're just coming just out of the, the kindness or, the, or whatever their own motivations are. But, um, and even York too, it's funny. I think York w- likes Bolingbroke more than he likes Richard, but he's like, well, anybody ever watch Curb? Curb Your Enthusiasm? Larry gets to an argument with somebody and he goes, yeah, fuck you, I'll see you tomorrow. And he just slams the door. And I can't remember if it's Jeff or who he's talking to, but that's what the scene feels like to me. Like, yeah, fuck you, you, you wanna come in? <laughs> <laughs> you, the position that I'm putting you in is just terrible. I, I, I think the big question in this play is what is what is that moment when Bolenbroke knows mm. what he's doing, and I I I don't think it's all that clear. I completely agree. I was just reading and reading and rereading Act Three because I was like, I think it must happen sometime before the deposition scene, but then. The way that he instructs Northumberland, and we'll get to it, to talk to Richard, it's all about, I just, I will, all of this will go away if you just give me my title and my lands back and my money. (laughs) And then by the end of the scene, Richard says, so are we going to London? And Bolingbroke says, yes. And that's the end of the scene. And it's like, there's no talking, even though the word deposed has already been used like 12 times in this play. There, there, to me, that's the beauty of, and, the, and, the, and that's part of the opacity, I think, of, of Bolingbroke. Is that he never has a, has a like Richard III monologue to the audience, and now I'll depose the king. You know, like, we don't get that moment with him. We don't get that, that the intimacy with Bolingbroke in, in a certain way that we do with Richard. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's quite on purpose so that when you end up at the dirty duck at the end of the night, you can argue about his nature. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think doesn't he like historically? Do, doesn't he after he becomes king? Doesn't he actually kind of like be like I don't want to fucking do this anymore? 
Doesn't he put somebody in else in power for a short period of time or something? Uh, Am I wrong? That? Mm. I don't know. I know that uh, Henry the Sixth did that quite quite a bit, but he had he had a lot of he had a lot of. Uh, I'm he of also had was... a lot of powerful uncles. <laughs> he was very very similar to, to Richard the Second. A lot of powerful uncles that are sort of vying for power, uh, which also I think is really important to note. Uh, the word power not only meant power; it also meant army or armed force so when people are talking about their power my power is all weak it's, it's not just to do with like political power it's literally like i don't have the men to fight you which i think is a really interesting um it's, it's a very literal manifestation of power yeah i, and, just, and, I love what a yeah. oh sorry go ahead Arnie. oh please please that was that, that was all <laughs> i was just gonna say i love what a family drama it becomes <laughs> like in this scene too oh yeah how how deeply related all of these people are. Like, yeah. And that's the other thing I really like about Bolingbroke in this scene is it is really like tender. Like the thing mm. that he says is, you know, you remind me of my dad. And his dad died without him getting to be there. Like yeah. the, the real heart. I mean, that's what, what appeals to me about Bolingbroke as a character is like, of course, all of these characters have levels of manipulation and playing politics, but this scene to me is like him being like, you know, you are my father now. I just, yeah. I, I find that speech, oh, I yeah. love that Bolingbroke speech. I think it's one of the best there is. I think it's so good. And it's, and it's one of the, ge the, the ones that see, I don't know, I think is very genuine, right? Like when they're, like when they finally get, they're doing the whole pompous thing before the duel and then oh, they yeah. turn and they honestly turn to their family. He's Bolingbroke's like, yeah, I know you're mad at me, but you're my dad. Like, mm. look at you. You look exactly like my dad, who I know is dead. I oh, think yeah. it's a really tricky, like, balancing act, I'm realizing, with this whole play. Because, because it is so much about, like, the divine right of kings and all of these, like, you know, higher things. I sort of wish, I don't think I've ever seen a production that's so, like, just like family, you know, mm. that's a bit more domestic. And I, yeah, I'm really interested in that all of a sudden. I don't know. Really love that idea. And I think this play works best with small theaters and small houses and small audiences. And you feel like you are sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, talking about who's going to carve the turkey or whatever. But I, I, I really do think that the more we feel that these people are family, the, I really do believe the higher the stakes become because this is not this you're making decisions not just about your place in society but about your relationships your closest relationships the, the, the stakes just increase a lot I, I totally agree I, I love this Bolingbroke speech and, and it really the way that he lays out the argument it sure makes a lot of sense I mean he's got some pretty pretty legit grievances going on I think that the line that really struck me as you read it, Mike, was the wherefore was I born? Like, that's such an amazing thing to say. Like, why was I born? If my, if my cousin is the king, it means that I'm the duke. You know, like there's something kind of yeah. interesting about like what the significance of these people's lives were. Like, if I don't have a title, what is my purpose in life? You know, like, because it wasn't to do with occupation. It was to do with position and power and not so much with like, this is what I do for a living. It's like, this is who I am for a living. 
you know, it's, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's a, it's a level of like the, the work is so entangled with identity. Um, it's, it's a little, I, I wonder how you could stage this and, and kind of have it feel really contemporary in terms of this, this idea of occupation equaling identity. Um, I wonder what, what that universe would look like <laughs> in, in our, in our world. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> I'd love to see the uh, line of cards that Hallmark would put out for this play in this family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you were deposed. <laughs> no, this, the very next speech that Bolingbroke is about to make, you, you, you could argue that he's planning to, to basically storm the castle. Mm. You know, he's going to weed and pluck away Bushy, Baggett, and their complices. Mm -hmm. That—that's kind of acting like a king, isn't it? Oh, very much. And as we're going to get in the garden scene, you know, the gardeners essentially attribute Richard's failure as king as his failure to take care of the garden that is his land. And here, Bolingbroke is saying, "I'm going to weed. I'm going to be a good gardener. I'm going to pluck away all of these things." that are, what do they say, uh, taking fertility away from the, the flowers, the noisome weeds. There's such one, I'm, I can't wait till we get to that garden scene. I just love it. Um, so when he puts on the gardener's mantle, that's the moment York says, ah, I see which way the wind is blowing. That's wonderful. Oh, I love that. That you're yeah. like, wait, I can't do this. Richard can't do this. You can do this. Yeah. That's yeah. wonderful, Carol. I love that. I'm writing that in my script. <laughs> um, Mike, would you like to give us the, uh, Mike and Carol, would you like to give us those last little uh, speeches? Sure. So we can hear that wonderfulness. An offer, uncle, that we will accept. Uh, but we must win your grace to go with us to Bristow Castle, which they say is held by Bushy, Baggett, and their, and their accomplices, the caterpillars of the Commonwealth, which I have sworn to weed and pluck away. It may be I will go with you. But yet I'll pause, for I am loath to break our country's laws. Nor friends, nor foes to me welcome you are. Things past redress are now with me past care. And we're, I feel like our amazing imagery just begins to creep in. The caterpillars <laughs> of the commonwealth. I mean, that's what a great <laughs> phrase. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now we move on to somewhere else with new people that we haven't met. And that we'll never meet again. This is it. <laughs> this is it one for the off. Welsh captain. That's right. Yeah. We are gonna see the, we're gonna see Salisbury one more time, I think. I think that the Welsh captain is Glendower, by the way. This is just my theory. Oh. That the Welsh captain is oh, Glendower. That's nice. I'll lower my voice a little bit, but <laughs> I have no Welsh. No Welsh accents. Oh, no worries. And Zoe, I'm going to actually, uh, Zoe yeah. B, I'm going to have you uh, see if you can record the Welsh that you did for Lady Mortimer for Henry IV, yeah. part one. Oh, I would love to. I would not wish that on anyone else. So <laughs> Zoe did this amazing work where she like got it translated and then actually spoke Welsh during the production in that scene as Lady Mortimer. It was yeah, really incredible. It was so fun. I love yeah. her so much. <laughs> so, and, and here we have another, I think it's always important, what, what I noticed with, um, with Glendower, 
And with Douglas in Henry IV Part One, is they're very othered. They're very othered characters. They speak differently. Um, I tried to make them look differently. They are of the same land, but not of the same culture in so many ways in the history plays. They're, they're very much, um, I'm always very interested in which characters are othered in, in the plays, because I think it's really interesting about the way, how they fare. But just listening to the Welsh captain's language, how is the Welsh captain different from the characters that we've seen so far? My Lord of Salisbury, we have stayed 10 days and hardly kept our countrymen together, and yet we hear no tidings from the king. Therefore, we will disperse ourselves. Farewell. Stay yet another day, thou trusty Welshman. The king opposeth all his confidence in thee. Tis thought the king is dead. We will not stay. The bay trees in our country are all withered, and meteors fright the fixed stars of heaven. The pale-faced moon looks bloody on the earth and lean-looked prophets whisper fearful change. Rich men look sad, and ruffians dance and leap, the one in fear to lose what they enjoy, the other to enjoy by rage and war. These signs forerun the death or fall of kings. Farewell. Our countrymen are gone and fled, as well assured Richard their king is dead. Ah, oh, Richard. With the eyes of heavy mind, I see thy glory like a shooting star fall to the base earth from the fine firmament. The sun sets weeping in the lowly west, witnessing storms to come, woe and unrest. Thy friends are fled to wait upon thy foes, and crossly to thy good all fortune goes. Wow! Yeah. Such a beautiful little scene. Oh my gosh. Anything different about the way that the Welsh captain speaks? Pretty directly. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's all, he's all tens all the way through. Uh, a little, little 12 in there with the meters. But he's, I mean, this is the great chain of being. He's, he's basically saying, I see bad things coming. There's signs all over the place. And we think the king is dead, so we're heading back home. Mm. Um, yeah. He, he does talk like Glendower. He does, right? Glendower talks about like, yeah. my birth, the front of heaven was full of fiery shapes. You know, like yeah. there's yeah. all of this stuff about meteors frighting things. And I'm like, it's gotta be Glendower. Like it has to be. Unless that's a stereotype that like all the Welsh characters speak about <laughs> meteors and goats running from the hills and things. Well, but, it's like you know. Casca and Julius Caesar too has that speech about all the things coming yeah. apart, a, a lot of mm. graves coming open and everything, and it's a sign of something. Yeah. And in uh, Macbeth, one of my favorite oh, scenes, sure. the yes. old man about the, the yes. horses eating each eating other. Eating each other, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. It's always, it's, it's wonderful that the, the scenes where, yeah, the heavens are, are telling us something, right? The, the storms are presaging some pretty awful things to come. And, and then we see in Salisbury, this new character, like what a, what a beautiful sort of tribute to Richard's woes. And again, I think like with Queen Isabel, we sort of see someone who has this power of incredible language who is sympathizing with Richard that makes us begin to sort of start seeing him differently. 
Um, I was, I, I think I mentioned last time I recently read Barry Edelstein's book, uh, Thinking Shakespeare. And he has this wonderful thing about the attractive characters in Shakespeare are the ones who speak well, right? That's the thing. Um, there's a wonderful bit in, in Othello with Desdemona and Amelia where Desdemona, they're talking about somebody who's just come and it's right, right before the, the final scene. And Amelia is talking about, oh yeah, he was pretty good looking, right? And Desdemona says, he speaks well. And there's something about the fact that someone speaks well that makes them very attractive in Shakespeare. And there's well, something, isn't that what it, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, what, Bill. Well, I was gonna say, it, 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 Othello, and then she, she verifies this. Othello says, that's what won Desdemona over to me. Yes. Right? Is that I told all these wonderful stories and she listened and, and then she confirms that before the court. And then there's the wonderful line of the, the Duke going, yeah, I think that would win my daughter too. Yes. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines in the play. <laughs> He's just like, yeah, I could see how that would work. <laughs> but words are very, like the way in which people speak is very, um, is very important. And I think, I think with both of these characters, there's something, even though we just get this little flash of a scene, there's something that pulls us in because we're like, where do they come up with, like, what if, Wow, what world do they live in that they, that's yeah. the way they, they talk about and see the world? Uh, any final thoughts on Act Two? Um, I, just I kind am, of a, No, no, sorry, please. No, no. You go, <laughs> This sorry. is um, kind of a random tangent, but since last week, I've been trying to think of what Richard II and now Isabel also um, remind me of. And I realized, and I think it was because it just happened, I mean, the On This Day on Facebook kind of had it, but your production of The Revolutionist, Ari, oh, it reminds God. me a lot of Marie Antoinette. Mm. in that talking about how the way they speak about Richard it's almost like he's not a bad person he's just a bad ruler mm. mm -hmm. and so it kind of it's brought that to mind for me a little bit because she's portrayed in that is and I guess also in the book that Maureen was reading about it as she worked on that character not inherently a bad person just woefully unprepared for the tasks that a good ruler should be able to complete so that's been kind of rattling around in my head since the last time we worked on this and I just put it together like today. That is amazing. And, you know, I think that kind of furthers this idea of identity being tied to occupation as well. The problem with Richard is that you can't separate his name from his occupation because he is the king. It's not what he does for a living, right? He is the king. And so if you have an incompetent king who's a bad ruler, the realm suffers. Right, so even, um, and, and that's, that's true of even less sort of, um, like I, thinking of, of uh, Henry VI, who was, who was the bad king, not because he was tyrannical, but because he was a total pushover and he just had absolutely no, you know, and, and when the king is weak, the realm is weak. There is this, this really interesting, uh, you can't really separate the two in a very interesting way. A lot of the condemnation of Bolingbroke is about what, not specifically about Richard, but about what his followers and his flatterers have done. They farmed, leased out the, the, the land and they've destroyed the kingdom. But it's, and, it, and it's really, it, it's like the court takes on such a bigger compass. It's, it's, it's the whole realm has been destroyed by these by these few people. Bill, did Bill, did you have something? Well, yeah, it's, it's a kind of a, a general point, and forgive me, it's kind of trivial too, but, and it might be a little funny, but that's not the intent. But that scene just struck me. I, I don't recall, and it's the first time I've ever read that scene, 
where um, so many people make entrances. Look, here comes such and such. And look, here comes, it, it kind of reflects the idea we've been talking about, how th fast things are happening in the, the, the play. But I just, it seemed, you know, when we go through it again, I'll, I'll be more attentive. But wait a minute, what, what's going on now? Somebody else has come in and then somebody, it seemed very uh, exciting in that sense. Absolutely, Sorry. absolutely. No, I, I, I think that's, that's very right. And I think we, there's many more focal points in this act than in act one. Um, I think act one was, was a little bit more, this is the thing that's happening. It's all about this conflict between Mowbray and Bolingbroke. And now it's like, oh, other things are happening. There's, there's many more focal points and it kind of shifts from, from scene to scene. Mm -hmm. um, well, wonderful. Thank you, everyone.